0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Women's Work, Rising, Leading, and Thriving, produced by the Institute for Women, Wellness, and Work at Ursuline College. I'm Gina Messina, and this is a podcast that empowers women to recognize ourselves as the leaders we've been waiting for. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with journalist, activist, and author, Lisa Factora Borscher's She has served as the editorial director for Bitch Magazine, editor for Literary Mama, and you've likely read her work in one of the many publications she's written for, including The Independent, The National Catholic Reporter, Bomb, In the Fray, Truthout, and the list goes on. Her writing has also appeared in several anthologies, and she is the editor of the book Dear Sister, Letters from Survivors of Sexual Violence, and Amazon's bestseller, Care Work. Keep your eyes open because her memoir is going to be released soon. Lisa, I am so delighted to be talking with you. I have been so aware of your work for so long and such an admirer. I love the way that you refer to yourself within your career and that you talk about yourself being a writer. I would love if you could talk a little bit about why you choose to identify that way. Well, thank
1: you for having me on. I'm so excited to connect with you again. I'm that interest and fascination and, you know, just that that camaraderie is, is mutual. I've been a long admirer of your work and your voice. So I'm really honored to be here. I think everything that I do is a connection and opportunity for me to express who I am in the world. That's my, my uh, relationship with language. And so with all the opportunities that writers have to describe who they are, author, poet, storyteller... Truth teller. <laughs> there are so many wonderful ways that we can describe who we are and what we do. I really just settle with the descriptor of writer because I see it as an opportunity when people automatically just ask, Well, what kind of writing do you do? It really opens up the invitation to talk about my work in the present, which I I'm hoping folks see as genre bending and kind of pushing boundaries. That is, yes, it has journalistic um, elements in it. There's uh, there's reporting. There's um, storytelling. There's there's fact checking. There's research. But there's also there's also an element of lyricism and poetry and um, the very broad umbrella of creative nonfiction. Just is my home base. And so, just describing myself as a writer feels the most liberating. And the most inviting for me to have dialogue with other people who ask, this is a very common question. So what do you do?
0: I really love the way you explain that and, you know, use language in a way that is liberating for you, Mm -hmm. which I think is such a beautiful idea. And I appreciate the ways that you use your voice and that you use language to address the inequities that exist in the world. And I wonder, like, how did you find your voice as a woman who wants to work towards creating positive change in the world and using your voice to do that? Hmm. I don't
1: think that there's one moment where any person or any of us like discovers their voice capital V. I think that the longer I'm in a relationship with language and a relationship with publishing, the longer I'm in that relationship, the more I realize that we have voices and we have many different forms, I think, particularly for women of color who have to negotiate so many different identities in the world and so many roles that you begin to have a clear idea as you get older and wiser and more developed in your storytelling, that there's so many ways to tell the same story. It just depends on who's listening. And the longer I'm in relationship with language and the clearer I become with my relationship to language, the more I realize I have many kinds of voices. There's the voices I have, like as my, as a mother, the way I talk to my children and the way I tell a story to them. But then when I'm writing and I consider who is this for, both in terms of readership and who's receiving it, but also, you know, if I'm in an advocacy role, if I'm advocating or if I'm pushing a boundary, you know, who do these stories belong to in a way? Like, who am I just, I'm just like a a person that's in the continuation of a story. I don't think that I'm the originator of any one story. I think I'm a kind of like a vessel or, or just another person that's passing through and passing along a truth or a story. And so I see my quote unquote voice as really a very long journey to understanding that I have many kinds of voices and honing um, the different voices has taken a really long time in terms of understanding the landscape of writing, the literary world, publishing media, but also just who I am as as a woman in the world. And the more confident that I became as a mother, as a partner, as a daughter, just the stronger my writing became. And for me, that there's no separation between who I am as a human and who I am as a writer. When I think of like, what, when did I find my voice? I feel like I'm always refinding my voice over and over again. Um, anytime there's adversity or hardship, pain And I do the work to heal from that. My voice strengthens and then my writing is stronger.
0: I can't tell you how much I appreciate that statement, that there's no separation between you as a human being and you as a writer, that it's one. Mm -hmm. And I think so many of us often compartmentalize our different roles and see us as, as being one person over here and somebody else over here. Or that often when we're engaged with persons in different roles we're not always recognized as whole persons especially as employees right that we're right. recognized as a person who is doing a job but not necessarily as also a mother um also you know a partner also these other roles that we have and if we could address each other as a whole person i think that our world would function in such a more positive way. I think that is one of the critical things that we need in leadership today is to recognize the people that we're engaging with and recognize our teams and our collaborators as whole persons. And I think that that statement shares that so beautifully. Yeah. And I mean, aren't we getting like such a graphic glimpse of that
1: (laughs) right Right. now? Like, um, you know, through the pandemic and, you know, I think a lot of them, these instances of viewing all of the facets of our humanity is like captured on Zoom all the time. Like how many times are you seeing all of this personal life behind the business, you know, behind your job and you see kids in the background or you see, you know, a crooked picture or you see you know, someone just made their lunch and, you know, you you can still see like the pan and the spatula there (laughs) and, you know, like, and, you know, my partner, I mean, he is a consultant that he's on, you know, and, you know, on his calls and his zoom and I've walked in the background, you know, and had that panic moment of we're giving off these signals all the time that we're human. And then I just started wondering, like, is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, is that, thing that they know We've got two kids running this household, and you know, Nick and I are just along for the ride, just trying to make sense of everything. But yeah, I and I think one thing around um, work is I don't think that we're responsible, you know, to always cater to every single person's need as as a human being. You know, I think like a lot of people ask that question of women all the time in the workplace of well, how are they supposed to, you know, perform all of the duties that they're supposed to? And, you know, they're still a mother, you know, I can't, I can't give them half an hour off every day, you know, to go pick up their kids. I can't do this, you know, particularly um, managers or people who are in a supervising role. They're always asking, you know, how do you do that? You know, how do you recognize someone's humanity, essentially, you know, all the multifaceted things we are.
0: I think that's the difference between leadership and management is I think that leaders Mm -hmm. are very visionary and strong leaders are engaged with emotional intelligence and see the possibilities ahead. And I feel like management is really focused on just going by the book disciplinary Mm -hmm. measures, you know, um, and there's no involvement, there's no change, there's no growth with that. So I feel like exactly what you're talking about, being an empathetic leader and engaging people, your team from a place of empathy, using emotional intelligence, Mm -hmm. which shift everything. We know this from all of the studies that are done, like Google, why people love working at Google, you know, Mm -hmm. because they have, nap rooms and food and all of these things, right? But what they find is that their their employees are far more productive because exactly. they feel cared for, right? They feel yes. cared for and appreciated and recognized as whole persons. And then they're more productive. They want to do something for the company, which I think is really important to acknowledge. I totally agree. The research is there.
1: There are examples and models that are being done all the time. I was on um, a retreat yesterday for a nonprofit um, I'm a board member on, and all of the board members are from all different disciplines, all different industries. And this came up yesterday. And someone who runs a nonprofit, you know, she was saying that it's very unpopular, but she says it has incredible success rates of giving people unlimited time off. Now, I know this is like very controversial. You know, it's not going to work for every single organization or company, but she has found time and time again, you know, funerals, bereavement, birth, sickness, family, life. People need time for grief or to rest or, you know, God forbid, you know, you need a mental health day. Just- (laughs) (laughs) to get yourself together. You know, it just, I'm not trying to generalize and say everyone should do this. And it's really easy. I I understand that there's a lot more complexity around policies and, and all of this stuff, but I do think that there is so much space around our work ethic that we can continue to improve upon, particularly for women in the workplace.
0: I couldn't agree more. And interestingly, I I just read an article that said, you know, women aren't working from home. They are living at work because it Mm. seems like, not seems like, it's true. Women's work is never done. It's always something. And I think that gender split and responsibilities is getting better and some households have it down, which is awesome, but I think most do not. And so not being able to go to a physical office and have that space where you're just focused on your work is really challenging. And Mm -hmm. it seems like your day is beginning super, super early to start before the kids get out of bed and is going late, late at night because you got the kids in bed and now you can get a couple more hours in and there's that structure isn't there. And so it leads me to a lot of questions about like, you know, The benefits of working from home, because there certainly Mm -hmm. are benefits, but also not having a structure in place and how we balance that.
1: Yes. I think that an unforeseen, unexpected gift that I was given during the pandemic was being a writer. I had been working from home for the past couple of years and forced to contend with the structureless isolating hazards of being a writer, it's so easy to be distracted when the work itself that you're doing is mentally, emotionally and psychologically draining. At least my kind of work is and my particular book project is. And it forced me into habit making prior to the pandemic to really learn when is it best for me to push myself and when is it best to let it go. And before the pandemic, I could multitask and stay structured and stick to a routine. And when the pandemic happened, it took, you know, a few months for me to realize that the the gift of learning how to have a structure had to be reapplied to the pandemic because my kids were home and the creative part of my brain was inaccessible, and a part of my identity was completely buried for months. And I can say that now, and I I know that the impact of that is going to be felt for a long time. Like, I feel like I'm just beginning to get it back. I don't have any answers except for knowing that the work that I had to do in the pandemic to feel like myself again, it, it just took so much time. And it took so much help from friends and community members to be in my ear and say, nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody has this figured out. And I realized, you know, I was just like beating myself up over, you know, these voices in my head, you know, and I, there, there's just so much there. And I, I, I know that that is true for so many women, for so many mothers who are, in my opinion, they're doing impossible lives right now. They're balancing impossible demands. And it's so hard to articulate unless you're in it, (laughs) how difficult it is. And then you don't want to complain about it because you know everyone else is going through their thing. But the gift, to to kind of go back to what I was saying, the gift that I had before the pandemic was being a writer taught me um, certain skills to not feel so alone. And it taught me certain skills to let go when, you know, you keep trying and you're not moving forward. And then you just end up feeling so frustrated with yourself. It took me a while to relearn and reapply those things in the pandemic. And I'm still applying them now. I don't think that we have answers, but I do know that when we've had sufficient time to heal from what's gone on, I think we're going to have a lot of insights about what women and what caretakers, caregivers, what mothers and parents, what is reasonable for us in this life. Um, I think what we what we've been trying to do is impossible.
0: I. Could not agree with you more. I may have said that like in every response to you so far, but I feel like we are definitely on the same page as we are working through, you know, um, these stages of life and figuring things out. And the idea, you know, that women can have it all is, you know, something I very much believed in as a young woman, you know, in college and high, even in high Mm -hmm. school, right? That I can have it all. I can do it all. And it never occurred to me that nobody ever had that conversation about men having it all. Men don't think about having it all. They're not concerned (laughs) about having it all. It's not part of the conversation, right? And they know they can't have it all, right? Like they know parenting and work and there's going to be a balance and split. And sometimes you're going to miss the recital at school. And sometimes you're going to miss a meeting. And it's just the way it is. For women, it's like, oh, my God, um, I forgot it was green shirt day at school today. And the world is going to end, right? Like, how could I have screwed this up so bad? Or the thought of needing to leave work early to take a child to a doctor's appointment. It's like, "What, what are you doing? This, uh, to me, is a conversation that needs to be explored so much further. And I I appreciate that Anne-Marie Slaughter has, you know, started the conversation with her Atlantic article, which was, I mean, it seems like yesterday, but I mean, it's been probably more than a decade now. (laughs) Just scary, right? But Mm -hmm. I think we need to have a conversation in a different way because, I mean, I appreciate that she started the conversation. I know she's acknowledged this. I mean, you know, she's working for the Secretary of State you know, and a Mm -hmm. professor at Princeton and has this particular life that, that a lot of us do not have, nor the financial ability to provide resources for childcare and things like that. So what is the answer? What is the and I know that you don't have the answer because if you did, we would solve this, right? But I wonder what you what you think about women having our careers and doing things that we love and that we're passionate about while being mothers, being caretakers, mm-hmm. being partners, and finding our way through this and where we can grant ourselves some grace and what are reasonable expectations?
1: Oh gosh, there's so much there. Uh um yeah I will definitely do a disclaimer that I do not have the answers and if I did you know I would put it in a bottle and I would give it to every person that asks about what it means to have it all. Because, you know, I'm a person that is in love with language. And if I come into some kind of a struggle where I can't figure out something, that struggle is always a clue to look at the semantics and to look really deeply at the question and ask myself, is this question for me? Is this a question that I want to answer? (laughs) Is this uh, a question that's worded in a way that I can comprehend? And by comprehend, I mean live into it. I think it is an extremely layered question because it's also a nod to the American idealism of what it means, not just to have it all, but that this is a very gendered question. It's not just a question about having but it's a question of being and living up to and idealizing and dreaming. And because it's such a gendered question for typically cis women, it's, it's a question of what it means to be an American woman. And I have thought about this, you know, for the better part, you know, of my adulthood. And it has changed so much every time I've tried to ask myself, like, is this it? Like the first time... I published a book, is this it? Do I have it all? Or when I got married or when I had my first child and then my second child, and then we moved and then I went back to school, is this it? You know, like, is it about accomplishment? Is having it all about achieving? Is it about checkboxing, you know, particulars? This is a nod toward my Catholic roots, or is it kind of like an examination of conscience? You know, like, what does it mean? for you to have it all and i mean all in like the the quotes like what is all and i can only you know be accountable to my own life the more that i externalize the definition of all the less happy i was if it was associated with something external from myself meaning i have the job title i had a particular salary i had a particular look or i had a particular house or car or address you know, how exhausting is that? And the question for me didn't, you know, do I have it all it became like, how much energy am I willing to invest <laughs> in, in chasing this? And is it, is it real? And I think that's, that's really like the, like the meat of it is the substance of, is this really real? Like, what is this based on? And I can only come up with, again, like, My own life is revealed. I feel fulfillment when I focus on the meaning making of my art, the meaning making of my relationships, of my most beloved relationships um, and my faith. And those three are in constant conversation. And to someone else, that might sound like that's nothing. But for me, it's a preservation of myself, like to stop myself from asking the questions that I asked myself in my 20s and early 30s do I have it all? Is this it? Do I keep going? Do I keep pushing myself? And I honestly believe it's a question that sets up so many women for a life of pursuing instead of a life of being. And when you start asking, like, what is your all instead of do I have it all? Like, what is my all? I think that that pushes us closer to an authentic and customized sense of who we are. And I think that when we have a sense of who we are, that question of all starts to move towards the background.
0: That is such a thoughtful response. And I, again, really appreciate this idea of what does the word. I mean, what is your all? And I think that's a question we all need to be asking ourselves. And what, you know, thinking of Brene Brown, what does it mean Mm -hmm. to have enough instead of like always chasing the next thing? I think a lot of us might already have everything that we need and we don't even realize it. Because we have this continual societal pressure on us to, you know, go after the next thing, chase the next thing, earn more money, have more. You know, like we used to compare ourselves to our neighbors and now we compare ourselves to the Kardashians, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like people don't really talk to their neighbors anymore. They're watching Mm -hmm. reality TV. It's kind of a sad state and it feels like, oh, you've got to have this and you got to have that. But what does it mean to actually have enough, which which is a judgment on the way our, our society exists, not on the state of women, but also really being able to find for ourselves. Yeah. What does all mean? And I really appreciate the way that you stated that. And so I, I want to ask you, I just kind of want to shift the conversation a little bit because mm-hmm. you are one of... One of, I, I think a, it's fair to say a small percentage of women writers, women who have voice that is out in the world that people are paying attention to. And we know that generally speaking, especially like when we're thinking about the op ed world and whatnot, most of the voices out there are male voices. And, mm-hmm. you know, well, I mean, it's probably fair to say it's, it's a similar percentage. And when we're thinking about leadership or If we're thinking about government, um, I think it's something like 89% of the voices are male and women aren't always, well, I guess, I guess I want to say that I think that For a lot of us, we're not even sure what that looks like to say, I'm going to write and put my voice out there and share my ideas and enter the conversation. And I wonder what led you to say, I'm going to put my voice out here and be a part of the conversation. And what do you think other women need to know if they want to have the freedom and the liberation to identify as writers and to join, you know, to really be out there and sharing their ideas?
1: Oh, I love this question. Um, Thank you for asking it. I love the idea of writing being a tool um, of expression because writing can be a tool for many things. There's um, a lot of people that journal that has no the intention behind journaling is typically, you know, not the same thing as publishing or when you write a personal letter. Um, There's so many functions of, of writing. I, the, it's one of the many reasons that I love it so much is it's so flexible and functional and it always has a benefit in some way. And it is always surprising me with how generous it is. And one of the, the functions of it is, you know, putting your voice out into the world um, that comes with many fears (laughs) and it comes with a lot of, um, imposter syndrome and it comes with a lot of hesitation for me anyway, did. And I, I think that my ability to step out into the world with my voice, you know, similar to how I talked about my writing process, it wasn't always, I wasn't always writing to put my voice out into the world for others to hear. It was just, I was Seven years old, and I just didn't really like the way books ended, so I'd rewrite the ending, um, and I'd just keep it for myself.
0: (laughs) I love this. That is amazing.
1: (laughs) I'm like, you know, I didn't really think that that was how I wanted the end for that character. I'll just rewrite it. (laughs) That is
0: so so great.
1: I wish I had that kind of audacity. um, Like today, I'm a little more fearful of of saying that. Well, I don't like that, so I'm just gonna rewrite it. But I think it started there. And, and then, you know, little by little, I just started, I, I just loved the process of, of writing for like the yearbook or, you know, writing for school publications. And it wasn't about circulation. It was just about how fun it was um, to have a conversation with people, have them read your idea or thought. And then they say something back to you about what their thought is. And that whole like reciprocity, you know, it was just so exciting, but it was mostly just fun. But the first time that I published something, you know, outside of school, I was in high school. I was pretty young. I was like 14 or 15 and I was going to be a physician. My parents were like, Oh, you know, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a physician. I'm like, of course, yes, that's what I'm going to do with my life. And so my parents uh, signed me up for this med camp and med camp was this, um, it was at the Ohio. I I don't remember the whole acronym, but it was basically all of like the the medical schools, the Ohio Northern. uh, I'm sorry. I can't remember like the acronym, but they had this weekend for, you know, for kids like me, you're like, I'm going to be a physician one day. And you just went to med camp for a whole weekend. And you got to like, actually hold like physical hearts, physical lungs. And you did dissection. And labs. And it was awesome. Like to this day, I can still remember the weight of holding these hearts in my hand. And I remember afterward, like I ran home and I told my parents, I'm going to be a physician. But the first thing that I did that night when I got home was I wrote (laughs) like an op ed for my paper. About how there needs to be more girls going to medical school, <laughs> something like that, you know. And like looking back, it's so funny to me. It's so typical in some ways of like I had my eyes set on what I was supposed to do, and I didn't have my eyes set on what I love to do. And what I was supposed to do was go to medical school and become a physician. But what I ended up doing that night was not what I ended up doing with my life, which was following what gave me joy and fun was. Writing and putting it out into the into the world, and it just started like that. And little by little, you know, I, then I started writing reviews for books because I had strong opinions. And then it grew into op eds. And then it grew into editing other people's work. And now it's, you know, I have my own voice of what I want to say, and being a cultural critic and being a thoughtful writer it feels very natural to me, but that is still what is, you know, not to oversimplify, it is still what is fun for me. So it is that it is empowering. It is about being in the world. And I appreciate every single person that has ever said that my work has helped them or they admire something. I'm always appreciative of that, but it's mostly I do because it's still so, it's so exhilarating. It's so wonderful and fun to be able to do the thing that you've always loved.
0: That's really, I think, what we're all chasing. (laughs) I guess when I think of having it all, it's like doing what you love, right? Um, Because so many of us are, you know, earning a paycheck, getting through the, the daily grind and paying the bills. And how amazing to feel that exhilaration every day in the work that you're doing. And Listening to you talk made me think of Parker Palmer's book, um, Let Your Life Speak, and how, you know, we often think we're supposed to do something and we have passion for that. But if we really pay attention, that we'll find mm-hmm. that our our lives will speak to us and, and tell us what we're supposed to be doing, which is such a beautiful idea and demonstrated so well through what you're doing. I think of, you know, I hear all the time, I would love to write a book. I would love to write an op-ed and comment on something. And how do I get my voice noticed? And I think that the world in the way things are today with the, with I mean, let's just be honest, the digital world, social media, the internet, everybody has an opportunity. That's not fair. If you have access Mm -hmm. to the digital world, then you have an opportunity to put your voice out there. And and to get started, at least in a way of articulating your ideas. I wonder what you would recommend for someone who's listening that is like, I would love to challenge myself to write and share it. Yeah.
1: Um, I just realized like I got so caught up in my medcam story. <laughs> I did not connect, which was like the point of your question of, you know, how can other other people write? And I I loved I your think mud- school
0: story. <laughs> I loved your school story. It was
1: fabulous. I think that, you know, the, honestly, the most sustainable piece of advice that I can give anybody who just wants to write is to think about what is the story you most want to tell. This is not coming from me. I've heard this from many famous writers who said that they don't know who is the original source, but many writers say there really is only one, maybe two stories that you're going to tell in your life. Maybe. Too and when you think about what is it that you want to do in your writing, that is not something that anyone can do for you, and that's a good thing. You have to go through the process of kind of you know filtering and sifting through what is it that you want to say, and the reason that that's the most sustainable practice is the more that you interrogate what is it that you want to say, more than anything else the sharper your voice is going to become. The sharper your voice becomes, the better your writing becomes. The better your writing becomes, the more people will want to read you or the more people will want to hear what you have to say. And so the thought process that goes into asking yourself, what is the story that you want to tell? It is a sharpening process for your writing voice and for anybody Who wants to write? That can be an op-ed. It can be a blog post. It can be, you know, really, you know, thoughtful Twitter account. Um, There's all forms of writing and um, there's all different ways to distribute it now. There's still people who do um, all different kinds of like uh, zines and um, websites that do collaborations with all different kinds of artists and storytellers. I I just think we're living in the most exciting time for anyone who wants to write, there is a port. I do believe there is a port for most people who want to give a part of themselves in written expression. And there is a way to put yourself out there if you really want to. So my advice is to first begin the mental rigor that exercise, that practice of think about what do you want to say, figure out who else has said it. <laughs> yeah. Go, you know, do a very, very general basic search. Um, at the library or, you know, nearly everything um, is online right now, you can kind of get a sense of how well-researched something is or how well-written, how popular something is. I work in creative nonfiction. And um, for a while I did, um, I've done all different kinds of editing, but I used to work with Literary Mama. And I looked through hundreds of submissions around um, women and, and mothers who just wanted to talk about, you know, some aspect of motherhood. And I mean, there (laughs) is—I—I never read the same essay twice. There's just so. Oh my goodness! I mean, people are uh, so—they're so—they're so so devoted to what they went through um, in their experience of motherhood. I've read pieces as short as a few lines of a poem to you know manuscripts of like people who swear that they have you know the longest and best story to tell. So I use that as an illustration for you find what it is that you want to say and find your way into telling it in the most compelling way possible. I am a believer. I'm just a strong believer there's a port out there to get it out
0: there. That's great. So I, I know you're working on a new memoir and Mm -hmm. I, want you to know I'm so excited for your (laughs) memoir. Um, I cannot wait for it to come out. And I hope that when you publish, which I know is going to be soon, that you'll come back and talk to me again about your amazing memoir because I'm going to read it cover to cover probably more than once. And I just, I have one last question that I have to ask you. Last question and, and we'll wrap up, but I am dying to ask you, what is your favorite piece of writing you've ever done? Is that like having a favorite child? Like you just don't. Yes. Do that?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I will say this. My favorite writing is honestly what's coming out post pandemic. Okay. Uh, and I think that I will probably write about this in a couple years. Whenever I've had more sufficient time to really reflect of over the year of 2020. But honestly my my favorite writing has been just what I've produced in the past several months and it's just this this stripping away of anything excessive and I I don't know if it was like the constant looming of fear that I was going to die you know in the pandemic I was so afraid of of covid I was so afraid to lose uh, my parents I was so afraid of I was so afraid for the world. I mean, to be honest, I was just I was just in a deep place of panic all the time. And um, the healing that I had to do and the help that I had to seek out to kind of come back to my body and to come back to a pace of life that was healthy for me created something within my writing practice. I felt this like urgency, like I don't want to do any more throat clearing. I'm going to get right to the jump. <laughs> know, yeah. I'm getting right to the heart of conflict. I'm getting right to the heart of what it is I want to say. And I also don't care what people think anymore. I really didn't care before the pandemic, but now I really, 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 really don't care. And that is such a wonderful asset to have in creative nonfiction and memoir. I really don't care what people think of what I'm going to share in this book. And that was a preoccupation that I had before. I worried what my family was going to think. I worried what previous employers are going to think. I worried about what the church is going to think. I worried what my friends and uh, my partner's family, I worried where I'll just, if there was someone that I knew, I was worried what they were going to think and I don't care anymore. How did you get
0: there? I mean, how did you get to that place?
1: I think because when I I dug deep into looking at what was I so anxious about what were the source of like I, I was I was struggling um intensely with panic and anxiety at- attacks during the pandemic and I mean my background's in psychology and I I couldn't find, like, I cognitively knew I was doing the right things, but I couldn't figure out what is my, like, what is this deep-seated fear? And the more that I started unraveling what were my fears, the more I was uncovering all kinds of things that I didn't know were contributing to just my general outlook on life. How wasteful it is of my life to worry so deeply about what other people are going to think about something I haven't even yet published. Mm -hmm. And that was preventing me from being truthful with myself. How wasteful, you know, (laughs) like like what a waste of my freaking time. And, you know, was I really, I read over what I, I've spent years drafting and some of it I retained, but a lot of it I, I threw out. I, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't saying things as sharply as I wanted to about what I was really afraid of and what I discovered. And It was just that process of recognizing, like, I'm only going to live so long. I got to get to it. And I think that kind of confrontation with your own mortality and recognizing, you know, in the most visceral way that 2020 showed us over and over and over and over again, you are not in control and you better learn that you're not in control. Mm -hmm. And all of that just kind of, I just had to work through that fear. And the more that I worked through it, the better my writing got. The best writing is brave. The best writing is bold because that's where originality comes out. I was saying things that other people have said. I've said things other women writers have said. I was saying it for sure in my own way, but after the pen I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we're post-pandemic, but for me coming out of coming out of 2020, I just... I wanted to say what I wanted to say. And I just discovered just a new fire within my spirituality and within my faith. And I owed it to myself to be truthful about how much I wanted to say instead of holding back the way I did before the pandemic.
0: Well, I think that that is really such an important experience that you've shared and one that I think so many are going to be able to relate to. And I'm grateful for your willingness and your courage. I find you so incredibly courageous oh my gosh! <laughs> um, and, and I think you are bold. Your work is so bold. and And I appreciate you sharing that because hearing, and you know this, hearing someone else's experience is a way that we give ourselves permission. So thank you. And Lisa, this has been one of the most impactful conversations that I've had. And I cannot fully articulate as much as, you know, I know your love for language. I do not have the words to articulate my gratitude. So thank you for this conversation. And I anxiously await your memoir and our next conversation. Thank you so much for having me. And um,
1: yeah, just even having the space to even think about writing like this, you know, is, it's actually really rare just to have a space that you're curating in a space that a writer can trust and, you know, giving me space just to kind of go back in my memory and really reflect about your questions, which were really, really good. Um, so thank you for that space uh, to do that and letting me share.
0: Thank you, Lisa. It's truly been a privilege. Thanks for listening in today and to learn more about our guests, visit our website at womenwellnesswork.ursuline.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to Women's Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.